Today on the programme, we're keeping things stylish in honour of London Fashion Week, which has just wrapped up. We're kicking things off with the founders of Heat, a luxury fashion brand inspired, at least in part, by a YouTube binge. Now with major investment from industry heavyweights, the team is focused on building a community and the optimization of their style profile data gathering tool, which curates thousands of boxes of luxury clobber in a matter of seconds. And later, we'll hear from the team behind a mini factory-led business on London's famous Savile Row, which promises bespoke shoes fitted by breakfast and delivered by dinner. That's all ahead this week on The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You are with The Entrepreneurs on Monocle 24. I'm delighted to say I am joined now here in Studio One by Joe Wilkinson and Mario Mayer, the founders of Heat, a mystery box fashion venture aiming to solve the problem of luxury brand overstock in a world filled with consumers who are increasingly mindful of sustainability. Joe and Mario are passionate about helping younger audiences to embrace a seasonless mindset. Uh, Welcome to the programme both. Joe, let's start with you. You and Mario both came from the same town in the northwest of England, but you didn't meet until you came to London. Tell us a bit about how your journey together started. My background was very much since I left school was personal shopping. So on my second day of college was when the first Adidas Yeezy trainer released. So I, you know, sacked college off. I went to Manchester because we're both originally from Sheffield. I went to Manchester, which was the nearest store with the Yeezy trainers, got the Yeezy trainers and then sold them on for a big profit and thought, I'm not going back to college. I want to, you know, sell trainers. Really, that's where my journey started. And sort of from that, I built up quite a big network of being like the guy in the north with the trainers. All the stuff that sold out, I was the source that had that stuff. From that, built a big network of celebrities, footballers, high net worth people, etc. And from there, I started working a lot more as a stylist than a sourcer of sneakers. Became really close with a lot of multi-brand retailers bought a lot of product on behalf of other people, so built my own personal account up and really became aware of this issue around surplus product in the fashion industry. And, you know, any brand can discount stuff all the way down to 90% until somebody buys it, somebody will. But there are certain styles that brands don't want to discount and it's always the best stuff, the stuff they carry over. And I guess my thinking was something needs to change in fashion because there's so much product that doesn't end up in the hands of somebody who wants to wear it. And I guess the thinking was, how do we get that to an end customer without diminishing the brand values, which is discounting the product? And I met Mario in 2019. We were introduced when I moved to London not long before we started Heat together. So we didn't know each other in Sheffield. We were from like complete opposite ends of Sheffield. We like clicked straight away. We were both working in the same space and thinking about overstock more than new products. Do you want to give a bit of an intro? Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I mean... I had a quite an unorthodox entrance into the kind of the fashion space where I really wanted to come to university in London. And I guess I always saw the fashion in London as like slightly more accepting. So I thought it, it kind of embraces more creativity. So came to university at UCL in London throughout that whole university career. I guess I was dabbling in fashion, starting a clothing line, doing, as Joe mentioned, the personal shopping side, but the business side of that as well. And, and then it really kind of looked at my dissertation as a business plan, I thought this is time for me to kind of do research on the industry and saw how much money was lost in that space and completed my master's and started my first company, worked in the distribution side of things, as Joe mentioned, traveled to Italy and working with the multi-brands and kind of realizing, wow, 
this is definitely an issue. So I guess it was so weird when, when me and Joe connected, it was like, we're so on the same page and we're both from Sheffield that this is like, <laughs> it almost seems too good to be true. To be honest, the thought we had at that time was, let's do something for Black Friday because Black Friday is coming up. And let's just do something interesting together, see how we get on working together. And we landed on this idea of, and it really stemmed from watching mystery box videos on YouTube in bed. I was just like, cool idea. I guess we just thought, you know, this is like a, a good idea. Let's try and turn something around quickly for Black Friday. This was sort of midway through October. So we were six weeks away and we formed the company Box of Heat Limited. And 30 days after that, we launched the first box on Black Friday and sold a thousand boxes within the first week, which was a bit like expletive. We're in a bit of trouble because we don't have the stock for a thousand boxes, but good, good what, reception. What, what strikes me so interesting across this is how you didn't procrastinate and you didn't delay and you didn't overthink and over plan that you just went for it. But do you think actually that was helpful, that fact, Mary, that you just dived in and went for it? Definitely. And I mean, I, I mean, looking at other businesses as well, and especially in our business, I think speed is such like an important part of startups. I think we have the ability and the flexibility to move quickly compared to like larger companies. So I guess that's kind of our competitive edge in a sense. And most startups have that edge. It's gut and instinct as well. Mm. It's like not doubting yourself at that beginning where this is an opportunity. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, we've got a lot of learnings. And I guess that's where I'm glad we did it that way. We could have taken six more months and like perfected the logo and the website. I mean, I'm glad no one can see the website now, but it was, <laughs> it was pretty shocking, but it, it worked. And I guess that's proof of concept and that's what you you kind of need to go out and do now one thing that's really interesting is you've got buy-in well literal and metaphorical buy-in from lots of uh, big brands and parent companies and investors which we'll, we'll come on to in a minute but for a product and a concept that is quite disruptive i don't like using that buzzword but it, it is it's disrupting mm -hmm. a, a pretty mm -hmm. entrenched scene how acutely aware were you that there was going to be some interesting conversations to be had with brands you mentioned how protective that they are they're quite mm -hmm small c conservative by inclination actually despite the fact they're quite edgy in terms of their branding presumably right from the get-go joe you realized that you know this was going to be a, a tricky thing to to navigate what was that experience like when we first started so our real connections were with multi-brand retailers so on the first launch we did we had no direct brand relationships in that box so we just thought before we can go and show this concept to a brand we need some traction we just need to sell some boxes show there's an audience there there's an interest that people want to buy a mystery box because the initial thing is when we say, oh, we sell mystery boxes is people say, who on earth will buy a mystery box? So we wanted to get some traction before we took it to the brands. And on the first drop we did, we did the drop. We sold a thousand boxes in the first week. And then we sort of went into a hole for three weeks, fulfilling the boxes before Christmas. And what actually happened was during that time, we got inbounded by quite a few brands that were like, we've seen this. Where did you get the product? And me and Mario were like... Uh -oh. oh, no, this can go one of two ways. Thankfully, it went the right way. They just, you know, wanted to make sure we got the product from good sources. They wanted to have a conversation about how we could work together. It was really interesting in terms of like who the first movers were with brands, it's mm. not the ones you expect. But we had and got a lot of support from some really good brands that we still work with today. Obviously, in fashion, it's one of those things where if you get a first mover that believes in the project, then it travels around the industry quite quickly mm -hmm. and, and gets a lot of traction. So I think that's one good thing about the fashion industry. If you convince one person, you know, you're going to get three, four, five from referrals, et cetera, from people in brands because they move around the different brands. And, you know, the fashion industry is a small 
industry. Mm. A bit of an echo chamber at times, in, sure. a good, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, and Marion, how quickly, so obviously you get mm. that you get that buzz, you get that interest then from brands quite quickly. How early on in the process, though, did you also detect a genuine interest from them in this idea that there's a really important sustainability angle here, as well as being the next big thing and it's got a good buzz around it? Did they bring that to the table as well straight away? Yeah, I mean, I guess after our first drop, COVID happened. And it acted as a catalyst for us as a business because a lot of stores cancelled orders. We were the guys there being like, we're still working. We are a solution and and gave them our kind of pitch to that. And I guess that was part of the catalyst. But what they saw more than ever was during that time, the community that we'd built up because of the influences that we used, et cetera, was just so engaged. And it was an audience that I guess brands at that point weren't targeting as such, or they knew that they needed to target, but didn't have a good enough way to do it or a message to kind of say. So I guess... That combined with the fact that we were still working during COVID Mm. was a catalyst. And then after that, it kind of became more organic from working together. Talk a bit about then growth, an amazing start that you've described already. As you began to to scale, the acceleration was quick. How did you sort of manage that more from a business owner's point of view? It was chaos, basically. So we set up a warehouse after the first drop in Milan, which was when it came around to March of 2020 was the worst impacted place with COVID. And we got a call to say, everything in the warehouse is going to be quarantined for eight weeks. It's closing down. Do you want to take the product out or it's going to be here for eight weeks, basically? And we were like, no way, our drops next week. So we took the product and we moved it back to the UK. And what we actually did was we put all the stuff in my parents' house in Sheffield. So me and Mario moved back to Sheffield for six months lived in my parents' house. And for the next three months, me and Mario and my sister, Kelsey, we uh, we fulfilled over 5,000 boxes in my parents' like front room. It was crazy, but it was good fun. And, you know, we believe in it. We want to get stuck in. And I think now we're in a position where at the beginning of 2022, we still only had a team of seven. Now, in January of 2023, we have a team of 30. And I think 2022 for us was really a a time for the business to grow up where we were fully out of the other side of COVID. We realized that if we want to scale and make this a global business, we need to actually create an organization. We need people with, we need de- actually to have departments, you know, it's like we were spread across everything. And I think we got to a point where we realized that if we get people that specialize in certain things, we're just going to take the business so much further. And I think this year is really going to be our big growth year. And I think 2022 was for us all about putting the operational rails in place and just making sure we're truly scalable because we've been in a position before where we've sold more boxes than we can fulfill and physically fulfill. And even though we work through the night, whatever, it's impossible. And I know that it's important to get the right people in place to help us scale. And that's really what 2022 taught us. I love that. We hear sometimes about family businesses or mm-hmm. mum and pop shops, this sort of thing, but it's sure. literally the case in your parents' mm-hmm. house. What, what great scenes. It must. It's great also that you said that it was fun, as sure. horrendous as it probably was at, yeah. mm-hmm. at times. Let's talk a bit more then about scale. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned it again, uh, Joe and Mario. You know, you've got investment from big players in this space, big investors like Antler, LVMH Luxury Ventures. That is a literal and metaphorical endorsement from the brands that must have thrilled you when you were a kid growing up, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's incredible in terms of what that investment can do to power the business globally as we look into 23, but just on an almost personal level, yeah. personal pride, that endorsement, what a moment. Tell us a bit about it. Definitely. I mean, I guess uh, to this day, still it's quite surreal. It's more so from, if you take away the finance side of things, as you just mentioned there, it's like 
LVMH, we're, we're really happy to have on board with some of our other strategics as they are the best in, in the game as such in, in fashion and luxury. And we know that having them almost validate what we're doing was a massive step for us. And still to this day, it's part of the reason that brands work with us because they know if they're backed by LVMH and it validates it for them as well. So I guess it, it really is surreal. But it's not the end of the road for us. We still want to target more strategics and we want to make sure that we are working with the best in class in, across the world, across all industries. And it's not just really tailored in fashion as such. So I guess excited to see where it goes, but I agree it's definitely much more than just the money at the side. Let's talk a little bit about technology. I guess people say, OK, well, I get the concept. How's the selection curated? And beyond that, how do you ensure that it's right for the individual? And I know you've got some stuff in train to refine those processes. But tell us a little bit about how that kind of style profiling, uh, Joe, how does that actually sure. work? From the beginning, our thinking was we want to build he as the curator for everyone. So until October of 2022, it was basically me and Mario would curate all the boxes for everyone. And it was almost like they're mystery boxes, but it was like a Every box that went out, we thought, you know, it was a good combo. It was on trend. We liked it. But it wasn't, I guess you could say, tailored to the individual. We've now got a development team of five people in-house. Since we've had them on board, we've been working on what we call and what launched as a beta in November, the style profile. So what the style profile does is it gets the customers very like high level preferences, which allows us to eliminate sort of any immediate areas of dissatisfaction. So like receiving categories you don't want to receive, receiving colors you don't want to receive, your brand dislikes that you just don't want to be a part of. You know, there's all sorts when brands do something wrong and people don't want to receive it, you know, we'll not give it them. And for us, that's been a game changer. But what yeah. that really does pave the way for is one of the big things we've been working on is our curation algorithm that almost takes away the need of me and Mario needing to be there in the warehouse every drop curating the boxes and this actually is much more intelligent of course than me and Mario when it comes to making realistic combos when it comes to our cogs and the retail value we need to guarantee for the customer stuff they'll like based on what they returned from previous orders it just takes so many different things into consideration takes their style profile into consideration of course and now we're in a position where we can generate a thousand box curations in half a second with the curation algorithm that we've built, which is pretty crazy. And I think we, we've just started to really implement tech into the business and become mm. like tech first, whereas before it was quite manual because of yeah. the process we went through during COVID. But now we're in a position where there is really no limitation into like what direction it can go. You know, we're talking about a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. We're talking about all these different things that become possible when traceability and transparency across the business is there and it all comes from good tech having a good team and that's really what excites me going forward you make it sound so so simple everyone <laughs> can do it right um, <laughs> you've talked about the scale you can unlock mm. i guess in terms of distribution fulfillment networks it's just so exciting to have both the investment and these connections what's the ambitions for 2023 give us a bit of a, a few frames of reference definitely so for me like the ambition is is not necessarily growing to a certain amount or hitting certain revenue numbers or user base numbers for me it's about changing the perception in fashion the next generation of shoppers that are coming through have more of a seasonal mindset people now want value they want luxury they want things that last they want storage behind brands and we do feel like we're the platform that can change the perception where it's more about what the product is what the story is behind the product versus is it new season which was a thing for a long time 
we want to build a, a platform for fashion, not just mystery boxes. I mean, we've been through a huge process of changing perception when it comes to how brands perceive us as a business. So at the beginning, you know, we're a stock exit solution. We're now working with brands like JW Anderson and Mugler on content around their shows to amplify their fashion week shows. We're working with new season product in the boxes. We're working with carryover styles. So for me, we just want to keep pushing that perception. We want to build a platform where we have like really good engagement. We're building community. We believe in that our defensibility will come from us building our brand and really solidifying relationships with the world's leading super brands. So 2023 is all about brand building, but really changing the perception and making people see that good things aren't limited to just new season, which is a mindset we want to shake. Well, yeah. And I guess, Mary, that presumably will inform your ambitions too. And it's something we often talk about. Almost every business that we feature on this program, people need to talk about sustainability. Their consumers demand it and they're yeah. voting with their with their wallets and with their feet. Yeah. Buying that timeless quality, and that is a sustainable decision, even yeah. if the component parts might not be what you would first imagine. Do you think you're making progress on convincing your consumer demographic of that because that's a that is a value shift isn't it as long as anything else definitely and i mean we we have the conversation internally a lot where we look at who we think buys the box and i guess now who we know buys the box from the data side of things and it, it's not the guy who walks into a, a balenciaga and buys a new season full outfit head to toe from cap to socks and shoes so it's it's that gen z community that really are as joe mentioned seasonless in the in the fact that they're more conscious about how they shop they're going on depop and buying vintage trousers but they're also looking for that curation and education side of things and i guess our customers use the box for i guess more of a, an education piece on what we think is cool and it doesn't need to be newness it doesn't always need to be something that's produced but i guess if i touch back on the sustainability side of things it's not only about the environmental sustainability side of things for for a brand to be sustainable as a business as well we know have the thesis that for it to constantly be on sale and have like prices slashed or selling to outlets or whatever that's not sustainable from a brand equity position so how can we help brands be sustainable in that side of things so it's a kind of combination of both having a customer that's very keen and willing to be educated on brands but also brands willing to kind of connect that product with our audience we get asked a lot of questions on are people just buying this because they can get luxury brands inside for a, a good deal and what we've actually seen and a lot of the testing we've been working on is we actually are introducing more emerging brands alongside the luxury brands and we worried at the beginning that you know luxury brands will want to be alongside luxury brands and luxury brands only but they actually want to be aligned with emerging brands because they're the people with the new fresh communities and for us it's been an amazing thing to see where customers trust our curation of new and upcoming brands where we include a brand like namesake for example which we felt really aligns with our customer base but is below 20k followers on instagram for example but we like love the product think it aligns really well and when you put that product in front of a customer, you know, sometimes the response is, what on earth's this? Or, you know, what's going on? But as soon as you almost follow it up with, this is the reason why you've received this product. These are the kinds of people that are wearing it. This is why we think you'll like it. They're almost happier than they are with the luxury product because mm -hmm. it feels more curated for them. It feels like they're part of the trend setting group. And for us, we want to be a source of discovery and not just value through mystery boxes. Joe and Mario, thank you both very much indeed. That was Joe Wilkinson and Mario Mayer. You can learn more about the guys and all the upcoming drops at Heat by heading to heat.io. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs.
Well, next up on the programme, we're continuing our exploration of innovators in the world of fashion. University friends Jahangir Azam and Chris Bodel are the founders and CEOs of Arthur Sleep, a Savile Row-based mini factory pioneering bespoke shoes designed by the wearers. Their studio offers same-day service and an inside look into how luxury shoes are made. And they're here to tell us more about the process and how they plan to scale bespoke shoe production. Jahangir and Chris, thank you both for stopping by here at Midori House. Jahangir, let's start with you. Tell us, well, tell us about the process, first of all. How does it all work? What, what drives the brand? Arthur Sleep, for us, has always been a very traditional brand in the first instance, but much like Chris and I, we're, we're very playful. And, and that's one thing we really wanted to kind of show through our our product lines. It's a love for the craft. It's a love for seeing things being made. But more importantly, it's creating objects which you know have this kind of longevity in some ways. Mm. In our store, we have a gallery of shoes. We have different silhouettes, we have different lasts, and we have obviously skews of different product we enable the customer to come in to choose a model that they like we'll take them through the journey we'll take them downstairs we have a whole leather room where we can show them different fabrications and different permutations of materials you can mix and match whatever you want then we measure you so we'll take an impression of your feet we'll 3d scan you and then we'll allow you to to watch the process happen pretty much in front of you and watching anything being made there's a joy in watching all these pieces and the dots being being aligned and being joined together that's how you do it that's, that's how, how you we do it, it. that's you know? how you do it and tell me about uh, the scalability because i guess a lot of people say look you know the products that you make are at a very high price point obviously because of the degree of, of specialism and they're of a i guess a relatively limited scale but as obviously you guys as keen entrepreneurs you're growing a business how tricky is it to scale and how do you ensure that exactly what you've described you'll get that that amazing experience that you don't lose some of that and lose touch with those founding values as you begin to scale what's that process like well we've developed this very clever mechanism in not order to do our manufacturing is the adaptability of it as you said you know people can introduce their own <clears throat> material concepts into this be it sales or we've got some incredible remarkable regenerative manufacturing projects which are now sort of you know we've uh, bringing to the fray but but in terms of scalability we've got a this hyper proximity manufacturing model which we can then bring out into into other cities you know we're being presented now with opportunities in america people are coming forward with um, lots of proposals for us to to move into new york which is incredibly exciting and then venturing from there into into some other cities around the world being able to to manufacture with the speed and efficiency of our production, plus also then coupled with the imaginations that that each and every one of our customers bring. We want to maintain the sustainable narrative in, in what we're doing. You know, one of the key aspects of the whole proposal actually is the fact that we're a zero stock based business. Mm. You know, that enables many, many different things. You know, we don't have to then be reliant upon the storage aspects of the space requirements. You know, so simple propositions like that enable us to be in in lots of remarkable locations from the operating within a sort of submarine aspect of being in city centre territory through to then looking and taking upon opportunities to that sort of crosses seasonal demand. You know, we could be um, down in... Uh, in the south of France or, or the Hamptons or Aspen or, you know, moving around into areas where it would become very unsustainable of us to set up full plane manufacturing operations. And people would marvel. I mean, I know from sort of doing some research that, you know, you can produce from measurement to 
finished footwear in a matter of in a matter of only hours and i think that will surprise people because one of the things we always tend to think about when we talk about craft and provenance is time and that you know it's actually investing time that makes a truly exceptional product and i guess this is the extraordinary thing if you have these innovations and you bring them laser focused onto even a quite a traditional industry like shoemaking you can turn even that expectation on its head i mean that clients must be I don't know, does that sort People of just blow really, that? Do they believe you that you can do it even? Yeah, I mean, everybody's of that same analogy that how how is that possible? But because if you look at any other shoe brand, no one really has their own production facility. Nobody has it in-house, on-site. And that's one thing that we, we pride ourselves on, that we've developed this process, this system, that everything really is in-house. We give you full visibility of it. And we show you the process. We, we simplified the process in some ways that is there, you know, you know, there are the steps, they're the stages. It's it's beautifully it's beautifully simple. This is what we often find, I think, is with these great innovations, is it's it is almost inexplicably simple. The best ideas often often are, and it always prompts that question of why why doesn't everyone do it like this? Which is, I I, I guess, uh, I guess uh, one of the one of the great advantages to being the early adopter in the space. Let me ask you a few quick questions we like to throw a bit of a quick fire round in as well just to get you guys thinking a little bit um what about mottos the kind of you know some of them maybe cliches about doing a good business or that motivate you um chris i'll ask you first is there a bit of a go-to motto a cliche i just think of things like you know you learn more when things don't work than when they do etc but anything like that that speaks to the the arthur sleep experience do you think well i think it's the sort of the silver lining on the grayest cloud we've really bucked the uh all good advice in, in doing what we've actually gone out and, and sought to do. You know, there's every single person in the industry. And, and as you said, why isn't anyone doing everything that we're doing, you know, as, as we are now? But um, against all good advice, we, we stood out and started off on this venture. And I think, you know, you've really got to get out there and, uh, and not pay attention to, you know, any other clouds in the room and, and make sure that you, uh, you really stay focused on, on what it is you believe in. Um, so that's be- one of the things. Yeah, the best advice is maybe don't listen to any advice, which, well, are, which quite, we also hear on this program yeah. quite often. What about role models? Um, Junkie, I wonder, is there any person that you kind of look to and think, wow, I'd like to do that? Or Explorers, adventurers. Chris and I, we, we share the same passion. And I guess this is one of the reasons why we bonded so, so much. And we've started a business you know, and we're here 19 years later, is that we love adventure. We love the exploration. And there's a pretty good story that we should probably tell you, which has happened you know, two, three days ago. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're always in uh, receipt, given our eclectic mix of clients that we've got, you know, from, as you said, you know, about the incredible sailing yacht with with sails which were damaged in a storm and, and we're making up a whole series of deck shoes from that which is an incredible story in itself but you know just uh yeah just recently we've had a um a discovery of george lowe's sleeping bag actually it was used in the ascent of everest with hillary so you know we're looking at the, the first ascent of everest and and actually we're going to be using some remnants of that sleeping bag into then creating a beautiful pair of hiking shoes, which is what we're coming out with now, in, in incorporating, you know, a sense of that history into the very fabric of the boot, which is remarkable um, to be in possession of such a groundbreaking moment in human exploration. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about investing in the very fabric of the products, but yeah. it's literally, as well as pleasingly <laughs> metaphorically true. You can't true, get a true sense of uh, And the, the funny the thing is that this has just happened, you know, and every, every week, every day, 
we meet people and you know when they hear our story and the, the tools and the, the facility that we can offer mm. we're delivered so many cool things yeah what there will, might be a what will be a, next a it's, fun thing for for some of our uh our fellow uh, entrepreneurs listening in, especially in the sort of business community, we've we're actually just created a another pair from a 1960s uh, Royal Mint money bag that was sent through to us, and that's pretty incredible. So it's you know got all of the, you know the tapestry texture of uh, of the Royal Mint of London on it, and you know that was you know created it was a 1960s money bag, and of, of course you know everyone. Is well aware of you know the greatest robbery of all time, you know the, the great train robbery of 1963. So that was put together in, in tribute for that for for one of our clients, which was a fun project to be involved with. Um, amazing. Uh, what about you're very good, obviously, at measuring your clients' feet, but how do you measure success? Is it about metrics and KPIs, or does it have to be actually one of these intangible qualities? Do you have a? Is it actually about you know, when you sort of go to sleep at night thinking, yeah, I'm proud of the work I've done today. How, how do you calibrate success? What does that, what does success mean to you in terms of measuring it? For us, it was, you know, obviously defining the, the opposite of what everybody was saying. And we made our, our factory. We made the first shoe factory in London in 150 years. I think that's a pretty, pretty cool thing to say and, and a pretty cool thing to have. And the fact that we've brought that in now into the city centre and, and we're on the most famous street in the world. That's pretty cool. That's really cool. And you could go to somebody in Sao Paulo, you could go to somebody in New Delhi, you could go to somebody in Reykjavik, and you could say Savile Row, and everybody knows that's the sign of excellence, that's the sign of craft, that's the sign of something bespoke. That really qualifies you as, as somebody who's somewhere. And I think the really cool thing now for us is how we grow this and we're now you know, considering, you know, multiple different routes. Whether you know, the first one for sure will be in New York, but how do we take this, and where do we take this next? Because it's so easy for us now to transport this. We could, we could put this. We can open. We could put our whole system. We can get the tools together, and we can move this to a different location, and we could start, you know, operating within within six weeks. That was Jahangir Azam and Chris Bodal, founders and CEOs of Arthur Sleep. You can learn more about their bespoke shoes. Head to arthursleep.com. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. And do look out for Eureka coming your way every Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Thames and Howard. My thanks to them both. And of course, thanks once again to everybody on the team at Heat and the gang at Arthur Sleep. You can listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the show via your preferred podcasting platform. To contact us, drop an email to Laura. You'll find her on lrk at monocle.com. And don't forget, while you're browsing our website, to subscribe to Monocle magazine uh, to read more about better business as the team at Monocle see it. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.